Hey, before we get started with the interview, I'd like to recommend one of my favorite podcasts, the Music Business Podcast. This is a podcast for the people that want to learn the behind the scenes tactics and moves that are shaping the music industry today. It's hosted by two guys, Sam and Jordan, who do a great job interviewing some of the top minds in this industry. The Music Business Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get podcasts. And with that, Here's the interview with Dauda Leonard. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. Our guest today is the founder and CEO of CreateSafe, a company that is building a number of dope tools to help artists succeed in the music industry. I'd like to present Dauda Leonard to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of Trapital, so I'm excited to be on the podcast today. I'm glad you can make it. I think you've been one of the people that has launched one of the apps, one of the tools that has got the whole music industry buzzing, which is a dope position to be in. And we're going to talk all about that through the podcast. But before we get to any of the tools that you've built, I want to talk a little bit more about the work that you've done up to this point, because you've been in the music industry and you've been working in entertainment for some time now in a few different roles. What were some of those big takeaways or what were some of those big lessons that you had learned along the way? I've worked in the music industry for about 17 years now. And probably the top thing I learned was that relationships are essentially the technology of the music industry. If you could imagine relationships almost like an API, for the music industry. It enables this two-sided marketplace that has always existed that enables people to do business. And if you don't make relationship building the core of how you work, then it will be very difficult to exist within the at least the core of the music industry, the space that everybody likes to look at as like maybe like the glitz and glamour and the Hollywood or whatever you want to call it, it's all relationships. And if you can lock in on that, there's a saying, the same people that you see going up, you see going down or something like that. Or it's just kind of like, you know, you got to know like who you're dealing with. And sometimes, you know, when you get into scenarios where, you know, you have an encounter with someone which you don't get along with, you got to recognize that you're always probably going to do business or have to do business with that person. And you have to figure out how to maintain a healthy relationship with that person, even if you might not necessarily like them, because as they say, I guess it's just business. I think that the world is small in many industries. I think it's especially small in music, just given how consolidated so much of the power is and the people that tend to operate in different circles. Are there specific things about entertainment and music specifically from your experience that made it more of a relationship-driven business than some others? Previously, before I worked in the music industry, I worked in finance. At a young age, I was very fortunate. Like I had a a benefactor, this guy named Paul Tudor Jones. He invested in an after-school program in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, New York. It was called the I Have a Dream program. And through that program, that after-school program, which provided me a scholarship to go to college, I was able to become an intern at these different financial institutions, working on the 
commodities exchange, working in companies like Morgan Stanley, just getting people coffee, doing bank runs. When I think back about that time, right before I got into the music business, it still is sort of family oriented in the sense or friendship oriented. It really is that way where you're doing business with people who you trust. You know, you're sharing information with people who you trust and who have your best interests at heart. And sometimes maybe not. Also, that's a part of the music industry. And I think that's how all business works. Like no matter what people say, like there isn't anyone doing business in a vacuum. And the biggest business is done between people who know each other and who had history because you're able to go, I'm going to call up my buddy and we're going to make this deal happen. That's what happens in the music industry. Like you're like, oh, I've now found this artist that I think is awesome. I'm going to call up my homie. He's an A&R at X label. I'm going to call up my homie who's a manager at this management company, creative director, whatever it is. And you're making plays in that way. And that's essentially how most industries are working like in the technology business we wouldn't be able to have built create safe to where it is now if i didn't have a friend this guy named costa i met him at red bull he was the artist liaison he was like in the artist marketing services and after he had left he had started to like delve more into the tech space and he was from the san francisco area and one day he calls me and he's like, Dada, I met this guy. He's saying that he's building something called the Creative OS. And at the time I had told him about CreateSafe. And he was just like, you guys got to meet each other. And he's coming down to LA. I'm going to introduce him to a couple of people. And we went out for dinner and we got on. It was full on relationship. And this guy, his name is Funky. That's his nickname. I'm just going to refer to him as Funky. He's our CTO. And Funky was like into music. He was into Soul Lection. He knew the Soul Lection guys. And it was like this moment of being like, yeah, we all are speaking the same language, even though he was from the tech space. And that's how we've been able to build this company. So once again, it's like all relationship-based building. And I can see a lot of comparisons too, even from your first career journey in finance with some of the elements that are in TradeSafe now. It's taking the financials of the music industry, the way it relates specifically to artists and in the future, other parts of the business as well, but really trying to provide some of that transparency. And I feel like that's one of the main problems that you wanted to solve with CreateSafe. You wanted to create an opportunity for artists or other people to just have a better idea of what success looks like. Essentially, like... 2016-ish, 2017 rolled around, and personally, I was coming off of the success of DJ Snake having released his first album in 2015, and we had close to like four or five billion streaming records at the time. Was that the album that had Lean On on it? Well, Lean On was on Major Lazer's album, but it was one of the records that happened during the same time period. So we had Lean On. We also had records like Turn Down For What and You Know You Like It, which were equally, they were big, kind of like culturally defining dance records. And then the big middle and You Know, Let Me Love You were off of Encore. And so we had achieved a ton of success. And that was like, you know, at that time it was like, wow, we did it. Like I met DJ Snake in 2007. So from 2007 to 2015, that's eight years of work. People probably look at DJ Snake sometimes and they think, oh, it was just like, it happened like that overnight, blah, blah, blah. It was like, no, that was eight years of work. And so 
2016-ish, 2017 rolls around, and we start looking at the statements, we start looking at the success, and we start asking questions, and that is the impetus, really, a lot of times for what what started as Create Safe, which was like, how do we as individuals accurately measure the value that we created? So did you feel like there was a disconnect in terms of the value you were creating, but DJ Snake or others not being able to realize that? Totally. I think it's like this moment where you recognize as an artist, as a manager, as a producer, all these things, when you're not necessarily on the label side, you start asking questions like, well, what is this all supposed to amount to? And what is stopping me from seeing the same thing that the record labels may see? And that's where we set out to build these tools. You know, I went and my best friend from childhood, I've known him since I was five years old, his name was Longa. I called him up, I had recently had gone to visit him in South Africa, he was working at Deloitte. And he had this like consulting background, totally different from my background, just like Funky's, totally different background. And it was like, hey, here's the challenges that we have. And I know that there are tools that other people use in other industries. And if you think about a company like Deloitte or McKinsey, they build software to understand how to value their clients' business and create value for their clients. And so that's why I went to Long and I was like, yo, these are the challenges that I'm having. Can you help me with this? And he was like, well, this is how I do it. And he started building these spreadsheets, these like very complicated looking spreadsheets that are very foreign to how most individuals in the music business work. Now, most record labels and publishing companies have either these types of tools or people working in their business. But the average artist, the average management company, they are not employing these types of sophisticated technology solutions. And the first thing we built was a version of the deal simulator. It wasn't called the deal simulator. It doesn't exactly function the way the deal simulator works right now. It had actually way more things going on. It, you know, we were calculating publishing. We were calculating what if you had different stakeholders involved. And if you took an advance, how does that happen? How do those people get paid out? What happens on each platform in terms of how you're making money? Yeah, we ended up simplifying it years later, but that was like the beginning of CreateSafe, a tool to understand like, well, we had made something, we had done something. What does that equate to, you know, with some back of the napkin math? Why do you think that so much of that modeling and that ability only existed in-house at these companies and it wasn't either available or that those outside weren't creating this before? Education. (laughs) You know, once again, I talk about like having been afforded the opportunity to go to higher education and study, you know, I studied computer science and management information systems. And my friend Longa, he went to Morehouse and you know got his MBA. Not saying that college and university is everything, but those are the places where you get to understand that these systems exist. And then if you go and work at some of these companies, like forget just working at a record label, you know, if you go and work at Goldman, if you go and work at Merrill, or you know, well, Merrill doesn't exist anymore, but if you go work at these companies, there are these training programs where you get to learn how these systems analyze and build the models for what value people are creating in any industry. Of course, in the music industry, which is a hundred-year-old business, you're going to have those systems in place. Why wouldn't you? You know what I mean? Like, it's a hundred-year-old institution. If you look at UMG, Sony, 
Warner, these are companies that are owned by either larger corporate entities. Actually, they're all owned. Like, you know, Sony Corp owns Sony Music. Vivendi owns UMG. And Access Industries owns Warner Music Group. And these are big media companies that are public media companies. So they have to employ these sophisticated technologies. Their systems are built off of like IBM and SAP and ERP systems that have existed for like 40 years before we even needed to think about what streaming royalties were. So it's not really like a, oh, some underhanded thing going on. It's like, that's how they function. But why would individuals function the same way? It costs hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to have those systems in place, period. It's expensive. I mean, you think about the amount of work that goes into something like a Bloomberg terminal, right? And just the cost and the expense of that. And we're talking about similar type of systems in-house and the ability to be able to create that outside is key because that's how information and that's how the entire industry levels up. I ended up working at Paul Tudor Jones company, Tudor Investment, in college and right out of college. And I was building computers for traders. We were putting Bloomberg terminals. So I understood how much money they were spending to make these systems. So these people could go and trade and create these portfolios that are worth billions of dollars to create value for the common person, for the person who's like, yo, I want to put my money into this retirement fund. You know, the average person who works at the police force or the teachers union Of course you need sophisticated systems because those people, their lives are on the line. Their retirements are on the line. And so for us, we're like, we need to make those systems for the artists. And it's overdue. It's long overdue. I'm glad that you've done it. And it's interesting because you launched the record deal simulator a few months ago, and there was quite a bit of press about it. And I think one of the interesting things was that it was clear that you wanted to give an objective lens towards what is happening. You're presenting the facts and you're showing how money is recouped, who makes what, but you're not necessarily painting this in this way where This is intended to be an artist-friendly tool, or this is intended to be a distributor-friendly tool, or what have you. And I'm curious, what was the decision behind that and why you felt like that was an intentional decision, if it was one? Yeah, it was definitely an intentional decision. You know, we've seen a lot of the commentary. We've talked to a lot of different people. And sometimes people are saying, well, why didn't you put this in there? Why didn't you put that? Or why didn't you do this? And what are some of the things they wanted you to put in there? Well, some people have asked about publishing, which we're on the way with that. Some people have said, why do you label advances as costs, not profit? But back to your point, from a product standpoint, when you're developing product, it is very important that you have a minimum viable product. That's the, one of the first things I learned when I w- started going about this process, right? 20 years ago, when I was like studying technology and sort of building it right out of college, MVP wasn't a term. So I had to relearn a lot of different things. And what you recognize in technology, the first thing you put out has to be the minimum set of requirements to create value. And so while we could have added different things like a toggle button to make certain elements recoupable or not recoupable. We could have added elements to showcase what happens in record deals when money from international sources come in. Because sometimes when you do a record deal, that is calculated differently. There's a lot of nuance to a way a contract is built that we recognize that we had to say, okay, for this version, 
Let's get the simplest thing we could do. And the current record deal simulator and the way it is, is the most simplest version that we thought made the most value. Do we recognize that there are different elements that can be changed and updated? Yes, and that's why it's called product development. So publishing simulator is on the way. Also to clarify why we did record deal simulator and we called it that is because that is different from signing up for TuneCore or DistroKid or any of these other platforms. Those are not recording deals. The three things that we chose to represent were like a royalty deal, a net profit deal, and a distribution deal. Because if you were to do a deal with one of these conglomerates that currently exist, that's what you would normally see in terms of the financial elements of a contract. There are tons of different ways to skin the cat, but we were just showing some of the basic premises around how if you were to work with, say, whether it's an AWOL to a universal music group, to a frontline record label like Columbia. I just gave you the gamut of the world of it. And now also independence, right? Some independents said to us, well, how come the streams are so high? And there is an edit stream button so you could bring it down to 500,000 streams. The reason why when you first land on that app, it's set there is because that's kind of almost like a roundabout figure. If you were an artist right now that was sort of doing something of note would be a deal that you may be offered. That's all we're saying. You have to put something out there so that there is a reference point of, okay, this may not be everyone, but this is close to a standard option if one would even exist. That makes sense. So the tool itself, of course, is public. It was available to everyone. What do you have in mind for the business model for this? Because I'm sure that it's been helpful with some of the artists you work more closely with now already, but in terms of how this record deal simulator and the publishing simulator as well is a product that ends up making money. Well, one thing, because I just realized I didn't fully answer your last question because you asked about, we didn't take sides. So when we think about, and this goes into your next question you just asked, when we think about what CreateSafe is building, we're building a product and a platform called CreateOS. CreateSafe is just the company that I started three years ago, but essentially the platform that we are building is called CreateOS, and we like to look at it as the operating system for the music industry. And so what was important to us about the record deal similar as it started is we wanted as many stakeholders as possible in the music industry to be able to engage with the tool. Whether you're a songwriter or a producer or an A&R or a manager or an artist. So I know some friends, I have a friend who's a producer. He's been using it to forecast some of his publishing royalties because he has a, a sort of an understanding of how to be like, oh, I know what this equates to on the master side. This is what it might equate to on the publishing side, right? So some people who are more sophisticated than others can use the system and the framework to analyze other parts of their business. And that's what I really hoped for when we were putting that out, that it would be used for more than just that. And so as we look into like the future of what it is that we're building on the CreateOS platform, in terms of how we monetize it, we have built other apps that are either available publicly or privately in terms of how we are able to do business and operate. You know, when I first started CreateSafe as a black founder, I sort of jumped out there immediately and 
to a certain degree felt that, no, I could do this. I can raise all this money. I could be out here like everyone else. And I know we have a great value proposition. And what I learned immediately is we needed to do a lot of work. (laughs) We needed to build and we needed to bootstrap. And that made me go into a very focused entrepreneurship lane, which I kind of already knew from working in the music business, which was, well, why don't we build things and immediately use them? And as my partner Funky always says, why don't we eat your own dog food? So the first product that we built is what we call the CreateOS for Managers app. And it's essentially this CRM for managers. We like to call it almost like the dashboard for managers. It enables you to chat and communicate with your team, manage multiple projects for that artist, manage all of the deals associated in the deal flow so you can see where the deal is at and how to move it into close. And then the last piece being able to see an overview of your business, essentially like your financial metrics, your consumption and audience and engagement metrics, and then high level updates around your business. And we currently use that product to manage the artists that we work with. And, you know, because I came from the production and publishing and management business, I was able to convert clients that I was already working with into customers. And essentially, they adopted the idea of like being a part of a technology-backed management infrastructure. And so we look at that more as like our enterprise business. If you were to go to our website, there's a services link. We call that product almost like concierge, which is like our help desk for the music industry where we provide these like high-level artist services across artist management, artist marketing, and artist development. And in a very like hybrid management model in terms of a business model, not everybody applies for that kind of working relationship. That's how we've been able to fund the company continuously, like turning my previous management business into a technology company. What we endeavor to do is release that product and other products that enable artists and management teams to run their business on technology at a cost similar to like Asana or Slack or Tableau. So in the, let's say, 20 to $150 range from a software standpoint, and then potentially accessing different human services at a cost like you would hire a consultant. So we're still developing that business model and we work with different people like Grimes, another new artist named Y Balloon. We still do some traditional management business services like with artists like Blood Pop and Hana and then other managers like John Tanners, who is a partner. He's not only the president, but he's also a client. He's a manager in the music industry and he represents producers and artists. And we provide him and his team like take a day trip services to kind of like power their business. And additionally, we're also white labeling different features in this CRM to other management companies, one of them being a company called Hallwood Media, which is a good friend of mine. His name is Neil Jacobson. He is one of the most brilliant A&R management executives, and he started a production producer-songwriter management company this past year, and we've white-labeled one of our A&R products to his team, and they're starting to use that. So it kind of, like, like I say, functions along this kind of like platform business of building and developing different applications for different stakeholders in the music business. But we are 
moving towards putting out a product, an official product that everybody can sign up for and start using it like late winter 2021, spring 2021. It's a smart vision because the freemium model, which I think works quite well with what you're doing, you have this public tool that is available. You're going to have more public tools that are available. That is not only helping the broader community, which is your ultimate goal, but it's also lead gen because as you said, there are going to be a select few artists that are going to want a little bit more beyond that. It's not going to be everyone, but those that do, you are willing to be able to meet them where they are with one of your concierge enterprise services. And you already have the use cases as well to prove that with what you've been able to do with Grimes and with others. I think that will serve you well. We're very excited. I think the first two years were like, oh my God, like, what are we doing? No one was listening. People were laughing. People were confused. And I think last summer it really clicked into place once we like deployed the first managers app and now with the deal simulator that's been exciting i couldn't have asked for anything different we were working on deal simulator as the social media game erupted when kanye was talking about his contracts and he wanted to start yay combinator but we've talked about things like that also around like, you know, the music industry does need these accelerator programs. There's a great one that exists right now called Backline. It's a Midwest, which is so interesting, right? Kanye was talking about there needing to be an accelerator. There's one that's in his home backyard in the Midwest called Backline. And we need more of those. It doesn't make sense that at least in New York, Tennessee, L.A., Atlanta, that there aren't accelerator programs that are based on not necessarily like, like there could be artist development, but I'm even just talking about executive development because there are tons of people who want to work in the music industry, but they don't understand what the way in is. And it's not just through college. Like there aren't any colleges. Like I teach a yearly course at Stanford. It'd be my third year and great course, but Stanford doesn't look at it like, they want to create students that go into the commercial world of the music industry. That's not their purpose. I can't really go into, because I don't know the specifics, but what I was told is like that's not the purpose of these courses existing. Stanford is more like be in these programs, soak it up, and come up with your own ideas. It's not meant to be job placement and things like that. I could also be getting that wrong, but that was something that I was explained. You know, I went to school in Boston. My frat brother... He was at Berkeley. I know tons of people at Berkeley and it doesn't fully prepare you for the way the music industry works. Like the music industry works a very different way than what happens in books. Accelerator programs from what I know about them and my interaction with different accelerator programs, there is a certain type of preparation that enables you to build a startup. And that's what an artist business is. It's a startup business. And we need these type of programs so those are some of the things that we've talked about developing. We have a program that we started this summer. It's called the Creator in Residence Program, aka Applied Science. We also have a newsletter by that name. We're kind of retooling it, but the purpose was similar to when I was teaching these classes at Stanford, which is like, how can we invite different creators? Because we think about everyone in the music industry as a creator. How can we bring them into an environment, hear what their issues are, and provide immediate solutions? Not tell them about how cool it is to work in the music business or what our past experiences is like, what frameworks can we give you immediately to employ to affect your business? And that's what accelerators do. 
You know, they give right. you contracts. They put you in touch with people. They walk you through how to set up your company. They do all these little things that get you ready to pitch, to receive funding, to go and scale your business. I think that a lot of the discussion around the accelerators in music, especially as it heated up a few months back when Kanye was pushing for it, so much of it was focused on the artists themselves and how do we create an opportunity for the artists to have a platform to accelerate them that doesn't necessarily sit within the same major record label system. That at least was like the public narrative. What I like about what you're pushing though, and what I've heard a few other people starting to talk and push more about is that it isn't just about the artist. This is also about the people working around them and making sure that they have the tools because anyone that understands how Y Combinator or some of these other accelerators work, everyone has a role, whether it's your technical co-founder or your person that's, you know, doing the VC pitches or the person that is doing other type of tasks. That's why these teams are larger. And it really does take a lot of people to make that happen. So let's say that it was someone like Beyonce going through the leadership at Parkwood, not just her that is going through this to be able to put her in the best position possible. And the same applies to Cactus Jack with Travis Scott or any of these other teams that are doing the same thing. I feel like that part of the narrative has gotten a bit missing from the public dialogue. So I'm glad that there is a bit more of a focus to make sure that, as you're saying, we're talking about everyone in this ecosystem around the artist. You got to think like, there's no one doing it by themselves. You know, that no one's doing it in this vacuum. It's like, yeah, there's no one doing it by themselves. And people want a team. That's why artists go and sign with other artists. Because they want to be a part of that ecosystem. They're like, yo, that artist popped off. Let me be a part of their ecosystem so that I can pop off. Technically, artist-driven labels and publishing companies are almost like the closest we've had to accelerators. And Kanye actually had an accelerator he hasn't necessarily doubled down on that. Talk about good music. Good music was an accelerator, is an accelerator. He needs to see it as that. Donda, an accelerator. These are accelerators, but that means you have to point it towards the next generation. That's what Y Combinator does. Do you think part of the problem there is that there's just so many resources and time and that a lot of the focus isn't given to these artists run record labels that it could? Because I look at someone like Kanye, he's starting a label, but in many ways, everyone signed to that except him where he is still trying to fulfill his deal and do everything else. So it's like, there's only so many resources. So it's great that, yeah, I know he had Pusha T as the president, but Pusha T himself also had a whole number of things. So at least in my opinion, these things end up being a bit more like a collective than truly being the organization that drives and grows and has the power that they could. To the first thing you said about there maybe not being an I'm paraphrasing, and I'm going to say it was more like not being enough resources for that artist once they start this company. An artist is an original entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs are artists. Like Steve Jobs was an artist. Elon Musk is an artist. These people are artists, but they understand the art of business or they essentially are able to access people who are artful about the business. Artists are incredible entrepreneurs and business people. They're some of the best business people because they create value right at the gate, like by themselves. They could sit in a room, some artists, and make tons of value and make a full business on their own. But just like the startup world, they need a team. They need a COO. 
They need a president. They need a coding team. What is a coding team? That's their producers and songwriters. What is the COO and the president? It's like their manager. It's like an agent. You can swap out all these names, these positions, and turn them into the music industry easily. So they need the same things. And so, yes, when someone goes and gets a joint venture at one of these big companies, they need to be surrounded by a team, plain and simple. So we just have to ask, are the resources there in the major label or the major music company world to provide to these people when they give them those deals? If they're not, are the people that are already managing these artists, are they equipped or are they tapping into the world outside of themselves? And I take it back to like black people. If you look at the latest Goldman Sachs report, hip hop R&B is the number one. That is a result of people who have come from inner city communities who look like you and I and essentially are creating massive amounts of value. And guess what? You and I went to college. They need to hire people just like that. There's places like Morehouse. There's places like Wilberforce. There's places like Howard. There's places like Spelman. You can name all these amazing HBCUs that there are amazing people coming out of and also non-HBCUs. I went to Northeastern University. There was tons of black people who went to Northeastern University who are very smart, who are part of Nesby. To me, Afrotech is just what Nesby was when I was in college. So we have these geniuses, but we have to tap into them. We have to look at those people as amazing assets and not look at them as like geeks and nerds and people who don't speak our language because they speak our language. We're from the same neighborhoods. There's huge potential there. It reminds me of something else that Kanye said. I believe it was in one of those interviews that he did with Charlemagne, where he's talking about how people go to business school, but they go to take jobs at one of the top consulting firms, or they go work for one of the CPG companies that are pipelines for them. But it's like, well, why aren't MBAs working with Travis Scott? Like that was a question he posed there. And that's the ethos of this. So I hope you all can push that forward. I think it's dope to see it's over. All these artists got to pay those bills to those people, got them degrees. And you know, those degrees cost a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. If it wasn't for Robert Smith for the class of 2019, those people would be in serious debt especially with the job market, the way that it's been during the pandemic right now. I want to switch gears a bit and talk a little bit about you personally and some of the investments that you've done. I know you're an angel investor and you've done quite a few in a few different companies. How have you gone about that? And does any of how you approach Create Safe and how you approach the music industry impact how you approach investing? I invest in what I'm passionate about, similar to how I've approached working in my career. One of the first companies that I invested in was a business called Wexler's Deli. It was friends of mine who I believe were really good restaurateurs. And they say like the restaurant business don't invest in it. But I wasn't investing in the restaurant business more. So I was invested in friends who I thought were talented and I liked their food. And I also believe that they were building something bigger than just a restaurant, like it was a brand. So I also believe investing in brands. I have a friend, he created this thing called Primal Branding. The ethos is every brand is a belief system. And so inherently you're believing in that brand. The other investments I've made have been a company called Thrive Market, which is also food. 
And the through line about the food thing is I grew up in a African spiritual community that was based, a large part of it was like health. And so I grew up vegetarian slash vegan. And so how you treat your body has always been a very important thing to me. So investing in those first two companies was a focus in like, yeah, I want to make sure that I'm putting back into these communities places where you can go and get healthy food. And that's what also Thrive Market on a mass. Wexler's on a local level was doing that slash is doing that. Even as of today, like during COVID times, Grand Central Market in LA, you can go and you can eat food from different restaurateurs because there's like a weekly pop-up shop and there's this black brother. I don't know, my friend, he's choosing these people serving soul food at the Wexler's location. But then on a mass level, Thrive Market enables like the co-op system. And my mother had joined a co-op back in Brooklyn where I grew up called the Park Slope Food Co-op, which enabled us to get access to healthy food. Because we grew up in Bed-Stuy, you know, you couldn't buy healthy food at Key Food or the local corner store. So the co-op method was you do a work slot, you actually work and you're able then to go shop at that place and get like farmer's market stuff and the gambit, right? And so Thrive Market is that on steroids. You pay $60 that goes towards a membership, sort of like Costco, and you can access all these healthy products. And then your membership goes towards paying for someone who is low income housing or, you know, low income in general. And then also they were the first online business to enable you being able to pay with food stamps. So that was that. And then another investment I made was in like esports, FaZe Clan. I'm a big believer in the gaming world. I used to be a gamer. I'm not a gamer anymore, but I was when I was growing up. I love video games. As some of my clients like to say, gaming is like the next level world of art. It combines music. It combines film. It combines fine art, all those things into one place. And it enables also in this day and age, in terms of like the multiplayer age, it enables you to connect with people around the world and build community. And that's what esports is. That's what you know these esports brands are. And I also just primarily invested in the founders of all those companies. For FaZe Clan, it was Greg Selko, him and his wife Dina. They're like a couple of years older than me. I look at them as like OGs for me. And they took care of me and other friends when I was living in Boston and enabled my career to thrive. And when Greg was building this new company, I, you know, was really excited to invest in him. So for me, like I said, it's like ideas that I'm passionate about, people that I'm passionate about, and brands that I'm passionate about. And I do the same thing when I invest in stocks now. Not necessarily like one of these people that holds a lot of stocks, but like the ones I have invested in, a lot of them are music business based stocks. I think that if you work in the music industry, it would serve you so to invest in any publicly traded music company, because that means you're investing back into the music business. So what do you think about a lot of these publishing deals that have been happening? You mean the buying and selling of publishing catalogs? Yeah. So like what hypnosis has been doing or Shamrock or Roundhill? I think that they're setting the stage for the eventual ability to invest in artists and artist assets on the public market. So I think this is just the tip of the iceberg for what is to come. Buying and selling catalogs have always existed. It's almost like a 10-year cycle, but now this is turning into something different because of streaming. 
because now, as long as society remains civil, um, <laughs> streaming is going to drive long-term profits for the creation of music assets. And right. if you think about, like my friend D.A. Wallach wrote about many years ago, the digital layer cake and blockchain, that will be a reality in that you'll be able to invest publicly in an artist's catalog or in their brand. And so I'm looking forward to that. And that's kind of what is really taking place right now in the private sector. I think that it's a few things. One, as you mentioned, streaming, we can now just measure consumption in a way that we necessarily couldn't in CD or any of the other eras where people were buying the physical product, but we had no idea whether they listened to it one time or a hundred times. And from a financial perspective, the interest rates are just very low, which makes it much more attractive to have more of these deals. So I agree. I think these things happen in ways catalogs have always been sold. It would be interesting to see how long this current wave goes for. I mean, the multiples that they're being purchased at are quite high, but I know that there is also a evergreen factor to it. No one's necessarily trying to get rich quick, but the opportunity to earn consistent revenue over a long period of time is high. I have my favorite songs of all time, right? And if I were to look on that right now, I would tell you that most of those songs originated like 40, 50 years ago. So it's like maybe those multiples are high, but maybe not. I mean, that's just like our speculation. Like it's like, I got 42 songs on this list. The first one that's on this list came out in 59. Wow. No, it's up there. And I mean, who knows with the tools that you're building that terminal mentality, you might be able to have the tools to be able to make sure that all of the things that hypnosis and all these other companies are doing internally that the rest of the world doesn't necessarily have to the same extent. Maybe you'd be in a position to be able to provide that as a thing that the average artist can then look at and evaluate for their own portfolio. Oh, totally. I think that, you know, long-term our platform, we hope to enable the day trade, the music day trader. I like that. Well, we're getting to the tail end here, but before we let you go, is there anything that you would like to plug or let the Trapital audience know about? Publishing Simulator coming soon, I think in the next couple of weeks. So I'm excited about that. The same thing as the Record Deal Simulator, but for publishing, which is more so a much needed tool. That's the other end of the business, the Masters and the Publishing Deal. And we're going to go further with both of those tools. But right now, hopefully, we're putting out the most simple version of publishing to create that value that people are needing. There's more songwriters than there actually are public artists, because every public artist is also a songwriter. But not necessarily vice versa. <laughs> exactly. So if people want to check the tool out, where could they go? For now, dealsim.createos.app is the URL. It'll probably, when we update it, be the same thing. We'll figure that out. I don't know exactly how that's going to run. We're going to figure it out. And then createsafe.io is our company homepage. We're about to refresh that. There's something interesting. If you were to go to our homepage and interact with the website, that's also a product in itself when you put your text message in that we're continuing to build. It's a very intuitive system that we're developing. We'll talk about that another time. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple Podcasts, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram. That can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to Trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L dot C-O. Sign up for the weekly newsletter. Get all the content there. And also, shoot me a text. That's also a great way to stay in touch with Trapital content. You can text me, Dan Runcie, at 415-234-3074. Thanks again. See you next week.